Guitarist Lawrence Juber is one of my oldest friends. We met in 1975 when I had just got my degree from Berklee College of Music. He was 23 and the hottest studio guitarist in London. I was 24 starting out and I'd met a colleague and friend for life. Having absolutely loved his deep musicianship and innovative guitar playing for a long, long time, I wrote a guitar piece for him last year called Guitar Piece. He kindly recorded it for me, and I thought it would be a nice treat for all those guitar players out there to hear how one of the world's finest instrumentalists approaches a new piece, especially this guitar piece. Now, tell me about this guitar in intimately. This is um, an L5 that was came out of the Gibson factory in 1933. Wow. It was clearly started in 1929 because it's got the dot fingerboard. Yeah. The label says Gibson Mandolin Guitar Company, which they switched over to they dropped the mandolin around 1931. Um, the Gibson. Yes, I love that. The, the, the scroll at the end of the fingerboard, that's all kind of earlier features. But then the, the pickguard is a full length one, which would date it 30s, early 30s rather than 29. Yeah, although that pickguard could always have been replaced, I guess. I don't think it was. No? Okay. If it were to have been replaced, there would be an there would underneath there would be a screw hole uh -huh. because the shorter pick guards terminated about there. Right. Um, but the factory order number and the uh, serial number are both 1933. Right. Okay. Great. Yeah. And I, I got it for um, I traded three guitars and a check. With and a check. Yes. And a check. Yeah. Very nice. Well, I'm glad you whipped that out. Yeah, and I, I used it on a gig the other day, uh -huh. which was um, we were doing a whole bunch of like 
twenties, thirties style stuff. So nice. It was good. Yeah, there it is. Well, uh, Radio Richard, of course, is overjoyed to have you back in the chair. In some some may call it a hot seat, but in your case, it's just a kind of a warm, squishy seat. <laughs> it's actually a stool. A stool, right. Well, the less said about that, the better. <laughs> so today we're here to talk about uh, this guitar piece that I, I wrote for you, and you were kind enough to actually play it. And uh, I want to ask you a bunch of questions about it, and, and then I want you to ask me a bunch of questions about it, like, why are you torturing me? But <laughs> the, I kind of got used to that a long time ago. Rich. Yes, I know. We, we, we started, I started torching you in 1975. Yes. So, and that was uh, the beginning. And I still have the scars to prove it. Yes, yes. Well, I, I'm still discover also still discovering stuff we did together that I wasn't aware had um, been, you know, hits like the um, the thing we did with um, that Exile project. Oh, where, yes, yes. Colin Blundstone. Colin Blundstone, yeah, which turned out to be like a massive hit in Indonesia. Yes, yes. And, and other places, actually. And I, I was... Uh, it's kind of an interesting story about how, how that happened because I was in America that at um, at that year, but but I I was uh, of course people will always be amused. I went to America thinking I was going to be working, but I wasn't, and so I kept getting called back to to work in England, and so these guys who I had worked with, songwriters, uh, a guy called Steve Coe. Uh, said, look, we're doing this big record and we've got Colin Blundstone singing. I said, oh my God, I love his voice so much. And he's one of my favorite singers. And they said, yeah, we got this tune. And, and what do you think? And I said, I know just how to do this. We'll do it with guitar intimately and it'll be Lawrence Juber. And they said, wow, good. Okay, let's do it. And so that's how that happened. And, and it's, I mean, it's a really beautiful record. And, uh, uh, yeah, I th I, all of Asia loved that record, and I think some other countries too. So it was it was great. Yeah, but I ran into Colin uh, a couple of years ago, which is where I learned about how successful it had been. Yeah, um, you know, you just uh, when you do session work, you don't always know. No, you never know what it's going to be, and and I mean sometimes you get. Uh, you're doing a record for one artist and it comes out with another artist. <laughs> that's true. I'm sure that's happened. And, and you never know who you're going to meet. And the funniest one for me was reading, there used to be a magazine called Musician. Right. And I was reading this interview with Alan Parsons and he was talking about Tales of Mystery and Imagination, the first oh. Alan Parsons record. And then he mentioned that I played on it. And it was like, I did. Because <laughs> my name wasn't on the credits of the album when it came out. Huh. Um, but then it turned out that a session at Abbey Road 2 on a Tuesday night with um, a string orchestra and some mandolins and uh, Francis Monkman playing harpsichord. Oh, great. Yeah, man. He was, that was That was for that album. And, you know, but, you know, David Katz would call with a session and he didn't always tell you what it was. Yeah. Absolutely. So for all the guitar players out there, um, I thought it would be great to hear from you about, number one, what you do 
when you approach any new piece. I mean, the thing is you've played classical music, you've played the lute. I mean, you know, what would, in, what would induce a very handsome young man from Enfield to pick up a lute? What, Southgate, what is... actually, Southgate. Oh, Southfield, oh, sorry, wasn't Enfield? No, Enfield's down the street. Oh, is it, oh, sorry. No, right. Southgate was. Uh, Southgate, yeah. okay. Um, you know, because my ambition was to be a studio guitar player, but my motivation was to study music because I was doing all right, kind of, you know, mostly self-taught, but, you know, with some classical guitar lessons because I had to be able to get like grade eight to get into college right. on classical guitar. Um, but the lute was kind of, you know, I got kind of very interested in Renaissance music. And because the roots of fingerstyle guitar are really in that era, you know, there's no fundamental difference between playing fingerstyle on a six string guitar and on a 19 course lute. <laughs> if you really want to be authentic, you put your thumb in the inside to pick rather than on the outside. Wow. You know, mostly because in the, in the Renaissance, the bass lines were not important in the way that they became in the Baroque. Right. In terms of being the harmonic anchor. Indeed. Uh, so a lot of, you know, a lot of Renaissance stuff was really, it was much more linear. And um, it just, you know, and it was also a way of getting extra credit. And, and I ended up, I mean, once in a while I'd get booked on, when I got to LA, I'd get booked on sessions on loop. Uh, I played on the soundtrack of Lady Hawk. Um, Must have come in handy there. Yeah, I mean, you know, and one, it, it, periodically somebody want to know if I can play loot at a wedding or something, because I'm in the union book, you know, playing loot. But it's really, yeah. at this point, it'll be, you know, just for really odd, the odd thing. I mean, it, and it takes so long to tune and it needs oh, yes. frets and that's a whole. Right. Thing. So let's talk a little bit about um, how you begin to approach any new piece, regardless of whether it's mine or Uncle Tom Cobley, what's the first thing you do when you look at a new piece? First thing I do is put the kettle on. Right. <laughs> Priorities right. Now, I think the first thing is, I mean, and, and there's a difference between, I mean, you know, with guitar piece, which you sent to me, um, what you write is very guitaristic. So I didn't have to it's not the same thing as like, I mean, I've, for example, I've got on my music stand, I've got Skylark, right, which is in E flat on yes. the, you know, and the real book version. Yes. And, and um, so my first thought is, is going to be, okay, what register is this going to speak best in? Right. Um, which means you know, what key, right? What tuning, perhaps? Is it standard tuning? Is it DAGAD? Is it CGDGAD? Or you know, what's the ultimate purpose? How much improvisation am I going to be putting into this? What's the texture? Um, there's a lot of imponderables there. Um, and, and sometimes it just takes trial and error just to figure out kind of what's going to work and what doesn't. Right. And, you know, a lot depends on the, on the melodic range as to whether, I mean, if it's like something in E. Yes. You know, it's fine, but as soon as you get, you know, as soon as you, you're past the octave point, 
Yeah, you're already exactly. into, you know, you're already into violin territory there. Indeed. Um, and that, and then, you know, do I have accessibility of bass notes if I'm going to be high up the neck? Mm -hmm. And that's a function of key. It's a function of the texture. It's mm. there's there's you know it's stuff like that. Uh, with Skylark, I mean it, it's in E flat. So you know when I did a quick arrangement of it, I just thought, okay, I'll just shift it up a half step. Nice. But then that puts the melody pretty low. Yes. You know. Um, but I kind of like it in that register. You know, it's Beautiful. very yeah, great. kind of rich. Down rich, there. yes. Um, and so I wouldn't, you know, wouldn't think about changing the key on that. Um, with with guitar piece, um, the the first thing I did was, you know, look at it and think, okay, well, you know, how am I going to? Because you didn't give me any fingering. You gave me some indications as to where you wanted things sounding ringing. Uh, yeah, I, I threw in what I could uh, in terms of positions where I thought it would be easy or right. right. But but none the uh, you know you're Lawrence Juber and I'm not, so I just assume <laughs> you're going to think of something better. Well, I mean, for example, here I could have fingered. I mean, there's only really one way to finger the the C sharp minor seven. Yes. And which is, you know, which is lovely there. And yeah, then, with the but with the F sharp minor 11th, you know, to get that open B ringing. And, yes. and you've got a, you know, you've got a phrase mark underneath to kind of keep it, you know, remind me that it should all be connected. Indeed. I could have done. Yeah, but it's not as. For me, it's yeah, just richer. Indeed. And then here, and you do indicate you want the B open. Yes. But then here on the C sharp minor, now I could do this on the G7 yes. coming out of it. Yeah. Uh, and so, but what's co cool is, is to use the open string there for Yes, that. very nice. And that puts me back on that F sharp minor yeah. 11. And, and with the C sharp minor, with the C sharp minor, of course, you could also use the open E string. And I did get, that the second time. You did it the second time, I was just going to say. Yeah, which yeah. was great. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Um, what was, oh, that one. Yes. Yeah, I mean, Thank so. Thank God for that. <laughs> that and, and like with the, um, the, where you've got this. Yes. You know, that's pretty, I mean, there's no room for an open string there. Right, no. Other than the bottom, bottom A. Yeah. I love that, that G sharp over an A. Yeah, it's always. It's kind of Bacharach does stuff like that. Yeah, it, in a way it is, yes. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, pretty much, I mean, mostly everything else in this is, you know, there's only really one place to, to put this stuff. I mean. But this yeah. was a tricky bit. You're not kidding. Because to do, you know, you've got, you've indicated it as a G sharp minor, but you've got an F sharp and a D sharp. So right. the, the essence of the, 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 the triad is missing. Right? 
but, yes. but the problem here is that the next phrase, I need to be up there. Yes, so you I do. Fingered, I fingered that. I figured it like this. Wow. With the second and sixth string. Wow. Because then I was in the right place. But the hardest thing in this whole arrangement is keeping that E ringing. Yes, yes. But then the next phrase, you do a harmonic. Nice. Also because yes. it's molto ral, I can kind of play, you know, again, oh, yeah. it's, it's expression can make a difference as to how something gets fingered. Oh, hell yes. Absolutely. Now the question, you know, the big question then coming into the in measure seventeen is mm. whether oh, I could finger it like that. But I chose because it keeps me. Yeah, that's right. That's yes. And then here, of course, the the E has to be open. Yes. And then here. Nice. This was tricky. <laughs> yeah. Mostly because I have arthritis in my left thumb. Ah. And holding down bar chords like that, especially when the fingerboard doesn't really have much of a an an arch to it. You know, on an electric guitar that would be a lot easier. Yeah. So it just takes a bit more pressure. Right, but, right. Which I'm, but I'm... as but as guitar pieces go, I mean this was pretty much self explanatory. Yes, yes. Well the other the other aspect of it you touched on, which I think is really important for certainly younger players to think about is the word melody <laughs> now i you know really i i've known some wonderful musicians in my life i've been very fortunate to know some wonderful musicians but the key to being a wonderful musician is an understanding of what melody actually is and so many great guitar players who are actually technically really good I don't think get it. And you, from the very first moment that I met you, there's something about the way that you understand music, which is a singing quality of, of, of understanding melody. Uh, my father, I remember, said to you in uh, uh, many times, you know, you really understand the big notes. And how to he play. Said, yeah, that was the best piece of advice was he said, play big notes. Yes. Make and, the make the melody notes meaningful. So I always try and make the melody sing. Mm. You know, and whether that's on acoustic or if I'm playing, you know, if I've got a nice sustaining lead blues rock guitar sound is to, is to make that sing, to really bring out the voice. I'd be interested to know uh, when you started out, how that sort of got into your consciousness of understanding what a melody is, that it goes from one place, it rises to a, the big notes, and, <laughs> and it comes down and says, okay, I've said that, what do you think of that? And that's really what melodies do. 
And That's you true. understood that from the beginning. What what kind of music did you even listen to as a beginner to think, well, yeah, that's got it. I think one very important lesson, and you can blame Bert Whedon for this, because <clears throat> I learned out of play in a day, right. you know, Bert Whedon's book. And in the back of the book was when the saints go marching in. And one rainy afternoon, I sat there and I, you know, I saw, okay, that's a C and that's there. And I just, you know, I, I followed the melody. Right. Um, I, I don't know where the, the kind of the innate sensibility comes from. I, I think that that's, I think more than a, a kind of a, a talent for playing guitar, because, you know, from my perspective, I still think that I fake it, you know, and, and it takes, you know, it's, it always took me a lot of practice and um, it wasn't, you know, you see kids on YouTube, you know, nine-year-old kids who can pick up a guitar and just shred like maniac. Yes. Yeah. I never had that skill. That was something that just came out of a lot of practice. But I yes. think that, that hearing a melody and understanding the shape of it, I think was, I don't know where it came from. I mean, my dad was a big fan of big bands. Right, right. But you know, we didn't listen to a lot of music in the house. I mean, other than the radio, you know, okay. be, you know the Billy Cotton Band Show on the BBC or Two Way Family Favorites or stuff like that. <laughs> so I heard a lot of different kinds of music when I was yeah. growing. Um, well, that's 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 very obvious. But I mean, in in a way, you know, when I, you know, I love your Renaissance album, and and when you play those melodies, I see absolutely no difference from when you play your own tunes. I see well, the same attitude towards melody. I, I think it's the same attitude towards music. Mm. And I remember the um, I used to work with a session guitarist in London named Kevin Peake who was a very fine classical guitar player as well as being a studio guy and, and ended up working in Sky with Joe. Right. And I remember, you know, while I sitting down and I was playing something classical and he leaned over and said, you know, there's no difference between playing classical music and playing anything else. Right. And, and that's really been kind of a guiding philosophy for me is that it's all music you know mm -hmm. you go back and you think about you know in the baroque era i mean when when you see a concert of baroque music where there's a harpsichord and that's the continuo instrument it's wrong it's not the way they did it you know right. like you had i think it was for every four violins you'd had another continuo instrument i mean that 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 era had a rhythm section <laughs> it didn't have you know, they didn't have a drum kit but they had you know, lutes or arch lutes, the oboes, guitar, whatever. And, you know, when you, when you hear Baroque music played with somebody strumming, mm. and you realize that it all fits together perfectly well. Absolutely. And, right. and the fact that th that era had its own <clears throat> swing, too. You know, in France, what they called notes in a gal. Wow. You know, where those, and how, you know, how much of it was swung by kind of jazz standards versus, you know, some more academic dotted 
kind of feel. We'll yeah, never because yes. nobody left any uh, any records from that era. Yeah. By the way, I've always thought that the dotted notation of jazz or swinging music was was very inaccurate, and and um, you know it's it led a lot of classical players to have a kind of a a jumpy attitude towards the way that they would try to play swung eighth notes, but it was never act. It was never right. It's it's no. you know, somewhere between a triplet and something else. I, and, there's a great Phil Seaman quote about West Side Story. Oh yeah, I love that. Go ahead. Yeah, the, the trying to make that show swing is like trying to tow the Queen Mary through a sea of Mars bars. Love that. <laughs> Absolutely love it. And and it's so true. Um, you know, and I, I found that a lot with, uh, of course, writing the kind of stuff that I write for uh, strings. It wasn't until I met Gavin Wright and his section that they understood how to, how to actually really play swing eighth notes in a, in a swinging jazz way. Mm -hmm. And that was largely because of Gavin and he understood that music. And, and uh, so that was, a, that was a big thing. The thing that I'd like to know now, I, first of all, I'd like to know how you approach writing a new piece for a specific, because you, you've written so many different styles of pieces mm -hmm. and, and your, your pieces always have an intent and which is what I love about them. They always have an attitude, the form is always great, but how do you approach when you have to write a guitar piece uh, for a specific purpose? as to whether I'm being commissioned to write something um, or whether I'm doing it because I need another track for a, an album. Right. Or, you know, for some other purpose. Um, oh, about 20 years ago, I got asked to write an hour's worth of music for guitar and string quartet for Disney Sea in Tokyo. So if you ever go to Disney Sea and you eat at Magellan's restaurant, the music that you hear, which runs on a continuous loop for many hours a day and generates somewhere in the region of about $35 a year in ASCAP. Nice, nice. Yeah, um, that's, that's me. And it was, they wanted something that was very, had a very Renaissance feel to it. So that was kind of a natural area for me. And, yeah. and um, with a certain kind of an attitude to it. And, you know, this is kind of like, you know, what Telemann described as taffle music, you know, table yeah. music, you know, restaurant music. Yeah. So, um, and, but I, you know, basically I just kind of sit down with the guitar and I start finding something melodic and something textural to, um, to develop. Right. Whether that would be in, standard tuning or in, in dagat or whatever uh, right. here, i mean my most recent piece good good please um and the the what start this one started with the title which is grandma rose's chicken pan nice yeah because hope yelled at me because i was in the kitchen and she said i need a pan and i pulled out this big blue pan and she said oh we can't use that that's grandma rose's chicken pan can only use it for chicken. Um, and that just, you know, sounded like a title to me. Right. Hang on, let me get it right. So I've got a little vamp to start. 
come from there. Um, I love it. You know, so, but, but, you know, in, in the, the body of that, in the substance of it, it's, you know, how do you, how does one modify cadences, for example, you know, because the, the end of the phrase is going to be something cadential. Right. That kind of style, you know, so. And, and also, I'm just guitaristically, you know, the Travis yeah, sure. thing of using the thumb. Right. And, and what I love is because the next, you know, the motion towards the cadence is, you know, is going to the five chord, but the first move there is a B7 flat nine. Exactly. But most of the time I don't play the chord. I just play I just play the the, yeah. the minor ninth. I know the was it? Yeah, it's a minor ninth. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but that's the that's the great thing about the tune because you've got all those five of five of five things that are typical right. of the and, genre. And but, but how how they change. It's like right. yeah. Going to the F, going to the flat six. In the middle eight, you've got something very, hu a little humorous change, which is great. Keep going. G, F sharp. And you got that. You know, it's five of five, five, one. Yeah. yeah, and there you go, yeah. Yeah, but then on the chorus, give it the lift. with that cadential movement mm. is and how you know how many very i mean you think about baroque music in general is pretty much all ones and fives yes to you know even going into the 19th century i mean the the, the primacy of, yes. of the dominant tonic relationship i remember in college i went to a a lecture do you remember hans keller I know the name. The yes. German musicologist who was always on the BBC. And Hans yeah. Keller came and gave a lecture on the pleasure and the pain of music. <laughs> and basically what it boiled down to was the pleasure was the resolution of five to one. And the pain was, was the interrupted cadence. It was going right. from five to six minor. Right. You know, and because it was thwarting your expectations. Indeed. But the most fascinating thing about that lecture was that he had a piece of chewing gum on the on the sole of one of his shoes. And during as he paced around the stage, it transferred to the stage and then to the other shoe and then back again. <laughs> <laughs> well, the shoe fits. But, you know, the, the interesting thing that I, I've always thought about that is. People who support the concept of modern music always moving forward kind of thing which is fantastic and I'm all for it. I've always said that the only reason why, I wouldn't call it painful, I, I call it pre pleasurable. The only reason why certain music 
fills you with joy and wonder is the fact that it doesn't do some conventional things. It doesn't resolve in the way that normally you'd expect. But without that expectation, it wouldn't be any fun. It's the expectation that makes modern music great and makes, I mean, everything that all modern composers that you could possibly mention. Uh, the only thing that makes it wonderful is the fact that there is something to contrast it with. And I think that that's why it's so... It's well, so I, I think that the, the, the recognition of the 5-1 relationship sure. is built into nature. I mean, it's in the harmonic series, you know. Yes, of course. I, I, harmonic, as I say in my lovely harmonic. book right here, I say that very thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's Pythagoras, you know, it's, it's exactly. But what's interesting, I mean, one of the things, you know, being kind of a guitarologist, kind of, you know, and, and a musicologist by training, as well as a musician. Um, but going back historically, how much the fretted instrument family was really responsible for the drive toward chord progressions. You know, in the Renaissance, you've got like the Passamezzo family, like the Passamezzo Antico, um, which which is basically the Greensleeves progression. You know? And then you know the the chorus of Greensleeves is is the Romanesca, which is the That's really where you first get in kind of popular music, as it were, this push towards dominant tonic relationships, because you think about church music of that period and how it's not really driven in the same way. Now you go later in the 16th century and you get the, um, the Passamezzo Moderno, which um, hang on, let me just check tuning. Passamezzo Moderno is, is also known, um, the composer Thomas Morley, you know, we're talking right. about Elizabethan. Yeah. Thomas Morley described this chord progression as the Gregory Walker. Now, take some explanation. Yes. A Gregory was a slang expression for a barbershop. <laughs> it comes from something Gaelic. And of course, in those days, you didn't just go and get your hair cut. You would also go to a barber shop for some minor surgery. Yes, if they were the only ones that kind of really had sharp, you know, reasonably sharp instruments. Yeah, yeah, they pulled teeth there. Yeah, they would do that too. And but on the walls there would be instruments, so there'd be like a cittern or a fiddle or something. And and if you were waiting, you know, there was no Renaissance People magazine. Right, right. To read, you know, um, or play Duke, you know. <laughs> Um, it was, you know, people would jam and they would jam on this particular progression. So if you walked into a Gregory, you would hear. And you think about the number of tunes through the ages that use that chord progression. Right. Including, you know. A... 
Well, she was just 17. Yeah. Same progression, which in turn, I mean, Paul got it from when the saints go marching in, uh-huh. which is, you know, the same thing. Uh, even, you know, you've got a friend is that progression. Right. And with some modification, um, so many other tunes. But, yeah. but that goes back to the Renaissance. Right. But it was driven by, you know, very much driven by, you know, kind of guitar and lute playing. Yes. As was in the in the in the Baroque era, uh, there was the folia, which still I mean got used. Even Beethoven used the folia, which is the. just that yeah. would be, you know the ground base for improvisation indeed i i think one of the things that uh, you just pointed up talking about mr mccartney there this the similarity between you and him is when you know i listen to the Beatles station because i'm in the car and i'm listening to the Beatles station because it's great and and the thing that always amazes me is the breadth of music that is not not just the Beatles, but the 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 wide range of music that Paul it was influenced by, and naturally wrote songs in those styles. And he, it, it seems to me that your uh, approach to all these styles is very similar to his. In that you can you've got these options on the wall. You've got these instruments in the Gregory that you can pull down. You know, and and any of them will be you'll be able to play any of them because you know what they are and you've had you've had some oral background. I think Paul had that too. So that I would guess that that was a nice communication there between you that he could say, oh, let's do it. It's it's a this thing, and you'd know what. Yeah, you know. I mean, it didn't have to be articulated particularly. It no. just you know would flow. But you know what's interesting? I mean, you bring up the Beatles and you look at how they manifested their influences you know and um, take for example she loves you right there in the intro the fact that you're starting a song on the on the, the relative minor right and then going to the two major you haven't a five. You haven't had a five-one. And of course, you end there with the, you know, with the added six. Yeah. And then a Chuck Berry lick. Exactly. And there you got the minus three, which is very John Lennon. Yes. Now you've got the five, but you don't have a strong cadence. Or minor, man. Yeah, four minor is the big. Back to the Chuck Berry lick. Right. Yeah, four minor is just the big Beatles. But but it comes out. But and that's the Paul really a very Paul characteristic. And you you know it it comes out of the Great American Songbook. 
Yes, it does very much because after all, four minor is just another, it's a substitute for five, but a, but a much more emotional one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but John doesn't typically do that. John's chord progressions can be really quite um, odd. Yes, indeed. really, you know, kind of very left field and not coming from a, um, a, a, a necessarily an educated place, but but coming from a, a just you know, oh, this is cool. Yes, and you look at you know, um, I am the walrus. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, there's there's an unusual progression indeed. I do in Dagad. Of course, I do. Yeah. Lawrence Juber plays the Lawrence Juber Martin guitar. But you know, with I'm the Walrus. Yes, I know why. Yeah. I mean, you're going from a B to an A to a G. Yes. To a D, because you're actually in the key of A. Yeah, eventually. But it's it's these kind of like this descending progression. Yes, indeed. And there's you know, and like when you get to that part. And I love this. That's my favorite part of the whole song, right there. That progression. Yeah. With that that D sharp against. It's like you never quite know what key you're in. No, no, and that's what's wonderful about it. Yeah. And and how much it suits the lyric, doesn't it? Yeah, well, the lyric is, you know, it's pure nonsense. Yeah, but that's it, it's that it's that feeling of being not not anchored. But in reality. <laughs> yes, the, the chord progression, and of course, I gotta say, George Martin's absolutely stunning orchestration of it uh, really creates that whole atmosphere of being unbalanced and in a fantasy world. Yeah, I, I, I can't imagine what the Mike Sam singers said when they walked out of Abbey Road after doing that end section. Well, I, I talked to Paul about it briefly and he said that they were just laughing hysterically, but because they were studios, they just did what they were told. Yeah. And, 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 and uh, they didn't even think it was that funny. They just thought, well, these people are strange. <laughs> and uh, we'll do what the, we're getting paid, so then we'll do it. <laughs> it's a union date. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Lawrence Juber, thank you very much for being a human being and, and playing that, that piece of wood there. Oh, you're very welcome. You know, I mean, I'd happily do this again and talk about the benefits that come with using Dagat, for example. Whoa, I love that. Great. Anytime you like, I'd be up very up for that. The kind of voicings that come very naturally in that tuning that you just can't get in standard tuning. Exactly. And and I must say that your before you started with the dad get thing, a lot of your acoustic playing, you had figured out voicings that used open strings already on, on yeah. a standard tuning. And I loved that when you did that. And now, of course, once you got to 
to the different tunings, it went apeshit crazy bonkers driller killer. It, it, the, the only issue more than, more than anything else is, for example, you know, I have an arrangement of um, All the Things You Are. You know, which I do, you know, starting on a D minor. Right. But if I'm playing in an ensemble, I'm going to do the regular, you know, starting on the F minor uh -huh. standard tuning uh -huh. version. So I, there's a lot of tunes I have kind of two versions of. A solo arrangement doesn't necessarily function the same way as an ensemble. Oh, certainly not. No. And and uh, let's do a dadgad show. You know, I'm I'm very into any guitar nerd kind of uh, shows, and this is definitely going to be one of them. So we'll do that soon. We'll and, do that. Uh, meanwhile, thanks, and uh, everything is groovy. Indeed. All right then. All, All right. right. Thanks a lot, man. Bye bye. Hi, I'm Richard Niles, here to tell you about my podcast and my YouTube channel, Radio Richard. Now, they say the best things in life are free, but are they really? Let's see now. Friends? <laughs> well, how much do you really want to listen to their problems or lend them money? Nature? Well, do you know how much money it costs to maintain a park or save a rainforest? But subscribing to Radio Richard is absolutely free. It costs you nothing. Not only that, we actually pay you. How? With thought-provoking interviews and amazing award-winning artists. Where else can you get my interviews with music icons Barry Manilow, Niall Rogers of Chic, Michael McDonald, and Richard Carpenter of The Carpenters? So you see, Please like, share, and subscribe. You'll help keep this podcast alive and make the world a much more musical place. Radio Richard, it's absolutely free. Radio Richard.